Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen. We are thrilled to join you on 610 AM ESPN, ready to help you move into the weekend, talking about all the news in the world of sports or the Sixers, one or the other. Jeff, how are we doing today? We're dragging. We're dragging. We're dragging. You kept yourself up last night? I think uh, Mike's going to have to find a way to cheer us up. Well, we are going to bring him right on. We are thrilled to be joined by Mike O'Connor of The Athletic. Uh, Mike, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> A, a lot of things happened. That things was a happened. very open-ended question. <laughs> I figured you could just take yeah. it wherever you want to go. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, I guess, I mean, I guess you have to start with Ben Simmons. Um, I mean, that was just. It. I think. I think he even said it himself that it was probably the worst performance of his year. Um, it just seemed like, to me, it just seemed like there was an energy and a disposition that was there with him throughout the entire playoffs and the entire year that just wasn't there last night. You know, he didn't look to score with the ball. He didn't even look to to receive the ball. Um, He was, you know, had some costly and strange turnovers. Um, And and you just saw it clear as day that the team was playing better with T.J. McConnell on the the court instead of him. Well, and that's Uh, the thing. So I went to Facebook after the game last night, and I posted – asking people for their feedback on the game. And I never in my life thought that I would get that comments. That was your first mistake. I never life. thought that I would get comments <laughs> of why did they take TJ out of the game for Ben? And But you're right in terms of the way the game flow was going. The team was playing better with TJ in, and Ben played timid last night. I, I just why? didn't see the aggressiveness. Yeah, why? What What happened, do you think? Well, with Ben, I think... I think it starts with Boston's defense. They've done a great job of containing him. I mean, they send whenever Ben has the ball, especially in transition, they send multiple guys at Ben, and they've been meticulous with their transition defense coverages, and and they've really done a good job of containing him. But that being said, there's been a lot of times whether you know whether it's in the half quarter in transition where he has the ball in his hand and he's just not looking to make a play. That 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 was where the issue started last night was. You know, he would. There were several times where he got a mismatch against Aaron Baines, and we've seen so many times where teams give him, you know, ten or twelve feet of space, and he just drives it right through them. He just didn't do that last night. It just didn't happen. There was just like, like I said, an energy and a disposition that was missing. Yeah, and is is there any? What I'm trying to figure out is why. What what let he looked lethargic? Is is there something we don't know? Is he sick? Is 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 something going on with him? That all of a sudden, I mean, no, he, no, he, he was such a competitor in the first series, and and yesterday he just looked like a different guy on the court. Right, and and yeah, it's kind of it. It seems kind of unexplainable almost. I mean, he said that you know when he when he assessed himself post game, he just said he was in his own head too much. He was overthinking things, um, and you know this this stuff happens. I mean, everybody has terrible games every once in a while. This one happened at you know the costliest of times, but. Um, you know, it, it does happen. It's just he said he was deep in his own head, and I kind of see that as kind of what it looked like out there. But it's just unfortunate that it happened in such a big moment. I keep trying to remind myself that this team's young and they'll learn, and you know, the expectations have been raised, and you know, these types of things are going to happen. But the Sixers had a 22 point lead with seven minutes left in the first, and and I didn't understand Brett Brown not trying to really break that momentum, and after the game. When asked about it, I mean, you, you were there, you would know better than me. He seemed to indicate, like, I'd do it again. I trusted that they were going to get it together, even though they, they clearly weren't. Um, what were your thoughts on him not trying to stem that tide to where they went from tw- up, 
up 22 to only up five heading into the half. Yeah, you're right. He he doubled down on that decision after the game. Um, but, you know, I, I went back and I, <clears throat> I rewatched the game this morning. And just looking at that run, a lot of the things that happened were kind of fluky plays. The Celtics made some shots. I mean, Marcus Smart was hitting threes, and he's a career 30% three-point shooter. Um, those were the kinds of things that were happening. And I think what might've been going through his head was that run wasn't necessarily egregious play by the Sixers. It was a lot of, of fluky things that built on top of each other and just strange plays. And so maybe what was going through his head was, all right, eventually this has to stop and my guys will weather the storm. But I, I mean, I am definitely on the side of, I think there has to be a timeout called there. I mean, no matter what's, what's the cause of all of the things that are happening, you know, the building's rocking. The Celtics have clearly seized the momentum. Um, and, and, you know, e- even if you have faith in your guys being able to settle themselves, you can just call a timeout and do that anyway. That, that's, that's, that's the point of calling a timeout. Um, so, I, you know, I'm definitely in the camp that he should have called that timeout. Um, it, it's definitely something that raises a lot of questions. What, what was the stadium atmosphere like when Jalen Brown took that, that- – Drop ball by uh, Dario Saric and ran it back for a dunk. Well, Jalen Brown in his uh, in his post game interview said that that was the loudest he'd ever heard the, the TD Garden during that run. Um, and you know, I, I, I believe it. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, it's funny they they also orchestrated that uh, before the game they played on the jumbotron that uh, Joel Embiid's quote from after game one where he said. Uh, you know, the, the environment there was okay, but our fans are louder. And uh, Boston fans did not take to that quote very well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's safe to say that the TD Garden was, was very happy last night. An additional frustration for Sixers fans while you've got uh, Ben Simmons scoring one point. you got Markel Fultz sitting all on the bench while uh, Jason Tatum is uh, looking like he's going to haunt us for years to come. Earlier in the day, Dr. J was asked about it and said that Tatum should have been the number one pick. Uh, what's your thoughts on what we're seeing out of Jason Tatum with Boston and uh, what it means that Markel Fultz isn't getting any time at all right now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think Jason Tatum is great. I mean, he's a great player. There's, there's no denying that. Um, I mean, it's I don't think that's something that Dr. J should have said, especially in a public context, especially right now. Um, <laughs> I, but guess, I, think, I guess he know, won't Marcel, be taking World Be Free spot. He won't be ringing the bell tomorrow night. <laughs> yeah, I, I guess not. Um, but, you know, I mean, Markel handled it really well uh, when the media addressed him about it. I mean, he just said that, you know, I feel like in my time in college, I proved that I should be the number one pick in the draft. I think there's just kind of a – everyone – from fans to Markel to the management and coaches, they understand that right now Markel is a diminished version of himself. He's not the player that he was drafted to be, right? So I think that from Markel's perspective, he has to understand that that's the reason he's not playing in this series. That's the reason he's not in the rotation. Um, and, and I think the hope just has to be that he rediscovers his jump shot. Uh, that That's really the, the only hope that could you know, validate this trade from the Sixers' perspective. Um, if not, you're going to end up, you know, looking at a situation where the Sixers regret uh, passing on Jason Tatum and giving up an asset in, in the Kings or the Lakers pick to move up to, to do it. Well, and that's definitely going to haunt them, that additional pick. Uh, lots, go ahead, no, those, two, those two are going to be linked 
for their entire careers. Without a doubt. It's, it's, they're always going to be, unfairly or fairly, those two are going to be linked. And, and as is that entire draft, what happened with the Sixers and what happened with the Celtics, people are always going to measure the two general managers based on that trade. No, absolutely. Absolutely. And it's, you know, this series really brings it to light with Markel sitting on the bench and Jason Tatum putting in 20 plus points a game. Especially, especially so when you look at how much the Sixers could use a guy like Markel Fultz. You know, I think one of the things that's really been exposed um, on on the Sixers' behalf is just the, the lack of dynamic playmakers on offense. Everyone on offense can either um, attack the rim like a Ben Simmons or is a spot up shooter, right? So they really need someone that's capable of doing you know both of those things and just bringing a dynamic, you know attack to the offense that's exactly what they drafted Markel to do so you know you really see a a Markel sized hole in the offense so now we get to the second half the second the beginning of the second half not so bad right and then all of a sudden they just collapsed in the second half in the second half of the the third quarter what happened there yeah I mean it, it seemed like you know the Sixers offense kind of went stale again um I think the Brett Brown after the game really credited Boston's defense for this, but you know it's 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 not that hard to take your offense out of rhythm when your primary option is Marco Bellinelli with with your bench units. Um, you know, once they were able to put Marcus Smart on him and really disrupt a lot of the things that he was trying to do, Sixers started missing a lot of shots, giving up points in transition, turning the ball over, and and their defense was was suspect at times. Um, so I mean, just just from the Sixers' perspective, you know, missed shots, turnovers, and transition defense was was the recipe for disaster there. It seems like Brad Stevens has sort of had the the magic touch in terms of knowing the pulse of his team and the the players and combinations and and made adjustments that Brett Brown just hasn't. What's going on with the coaching dynamic in this series? It just really seems like there have been a few times where Brett Brown could have done something different. I remember one play out of the timeout where they ran a, a like a pick and roll screen off the the top and had him beat a shoot a three-pointer I, I just couldn't believe that that was the play that they they designed out of a timeout it wasn't just something that came down court so what's your thought on the coaching for both teams in the series so far yeah I think that I, you have to give the edge to Brad Stevens I mean the, the results speak for themselves but you know I I would say that I'm not as critical of Brett Brown's overall game plan as some people are. I mean, the the thing that's drawn a lot of attention is that the Sixers on defense have switched uh, pretty much every screen involving point guards through power forwards. In game one, that really haunted them. But in game two, it actually worked out really well. Um, What really hurt the Sixers was their transition defense. That was what got them more so than anything. Which is is one of the things that was a strength you know, towards the end of the season. Right. So again, I guess it goes back to, is it the competition that they just aren't able to get back in transition like they were against less talented teams? You know, it, it seems honestly like last night at least was just complete mental lapses on, on the player's behalf. I mean, J.J. Reddick said it after the game. It's just some of the sequences in transition defense were completely unacceptable. That's almost word for word what he said. Um, and you know he's completely right. The Sixers would—they were pretty reckless attacking the offensive glass. They would have, you know, you'd look up when the Sixers miss a shot, and they—they'd have three three players underneath the rim. A Boston guy would get the rebound and just push it in the opposite direction, and they're—they have numbers. They're going to score. 
Um, so I think that, like I said, that that was one of the biggest things that really burnt them, and that was just you know kind of an execution thing. So we're coming back home. We wait, wait, wait. Oh, no. you you're not so, ready to move on. No, I'm not ready to move uh, on. Jeff's got more yeah. to dwell on. Sorry, so, Mike. So, but because <laughs> I was only through the third quarter. So <laughs> so, so now we get to the now we get to the fourth quarter. And the fourth quarter comes and the Sixers, despite all all the problems that they had, take the lead. And they get to about four minutes left in the game. And it is clear that TJ McConnell has been a spark plug that for whatever reason Ben Simmons has not been in this game. And yet Brett Brown decides, I'm going to put Simmons back in the game. The question that I keep getting from people is, is why? And what I've tried to explain to people, and quite frankly, I don't even know if I believe what I'm saying, is that Brett Brown it realizes that this is about the growth of the team, but did, was he doing that to sacrifice potentially a win? What did you see there? So, you know, I've, I've said, I think if I were on the sidelines, I would have left TJ in, but I completely understand the arguments on both sides. I mean, there's there's definitely something to be said for for Ben's, um, you know, just sticking with your guy and and Ben's status as a, as a leader on the team, um, and not only that, but like you said, his development. There's something to be said for that for sure. Um, but at the end of the day, I just think last night T.J. McConnell was a better basketball player. That's just that's just a fact, and I think that he would have given them a better chance to win the game. Now, like I said. Hindsight's twenty twenty, right? If the Sixers left TJ in the game and they weren't able to generate offense down the stretch and they looked poor on defense, we would have all been clamoring for Brett to put Ben back in. Yeah, you're right. right. It, it, mm-hmm. Hindsight's twenty twenty. Um, oh yeah, he couldn't win I, either I, way. We'd have, we'd have killed him either way. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. That's just the nature of it. But you know, like I said, if I were on the sidelines, I think I would have gone with TJ McConnell just because Ben's night was a, a, a total dud. It was a total dud. He just didn't have it. And TJ was a huge spark plug off the bench, and I think I would have stuck with him. Okay, so, Jason, now we can go to tomorrow night. Yeah. So they're coming back home. Um, you know, the sky's falling, of course. The world's ending. But they're really only down it's two. Philadelphia. They're really only again. down 2-0. And if they win both of their home games and, and hold serve, they're right back in the series, and it's, it's who's going to win on the other team's court. And Boston hasn't won on the road yet. So what do you expect to see out of this team? I mean, on the one hand, yes, it's terrible to watch. On the other hand, this team is absolutely learning a ton about themselves in the process of doing what they're doing. So are, are we going to see them come home with the emotion that they've lacked, per se, in Boston, with that crowd behind them that Embiid says it's is louder be, than Boston? It's going to be deafening in that stadium tomorrow. It should be. Yeah. And, and it's an odd time start with five o'clock. So, wh- what do you expect to see as they they come back home here? Well, I think you're going to see them at their most desperate, at their absolute most desperate, which is a good thing, right? That's what they need: the, the desperation and the urgency to tighten up on on all of the things that they haven't executed on, whether it's transition defense or individual defense. Um, you know, just that those, those kind of things really need to be turned up a notch. And I think that you know between looking at an 0-2 hole and coming back to your home crowd, those are the types of things that that, that adrenaline is going to be pumping and, and those kind of things will tighten up. So I think you'll see a much better performance. And like you said, it's not over. It takes four games to win a series. The Celtics only have two, right? Last year in the first round, the Celtics went down, went down 0-2 to the Bulls and they dropped the first two games at home, right? 
It's we we've seen this happen before where teams come back from this kind of deficit. And, you know, the fact that the Sixers clearly have a talent edge in this series makes it very possible. So did the Sixers leave after the game, come home and practice, or or did they give them the day off? They practiced, yeah. They they had practice early this afternoon. I can't and imagine that what was film it, watch what, was what, fun. What was practice like? Did you get a chance to observe practice today? No, I was not. I was not there, so I'm not sure what it what it was like. But I imagine it was. Uh, I imagine it was pretty spirited. I imagine watching back that film was not fun for some of those players last night. Um, the one other thing we didn't touch on, look, and put up a double double. It just seems like Horford's a tough matchup for him in terms of pulling him away from the basket with his ability to shoot. And then you saw at the end of the game he was able to blow by him because of where he positioned him on the court. You think that they're going to be able to tighten up that defense and and have some help defense there on rotation for when he's so far out there? Yeah, I think that's something, you know, they, they tried to tighten up in game two. I think they did a better job, but like you said, it was exposed on in some of the worst possible moments. Um, but generally throughout the game, I thought they did a better job. But like you said, Horford is just such a tough matchup for Embiid because he pulls him away and just limits his impact and his ability to help off the ball. Um, what really has to happen there is Embiid has to outplay Horford on offense. That, that's what has to, he has to make the Celtics lineups where they can play, you know, five out with Horford at center. He has to make them not work because he's dominating them on offense. That's is, what has, or he has to get Horford in foul trouble. Is, is the mask happen. is the mask bothering Embiid to the point that he's he's staying outside more? Is he worried about the? I don't eye? think so. I don't think so. I, I think, you know, last night, I forget how many threes he attempted in game one, but I think last night was just one of those games where, you know, especially when the Sixers fall behind, he kind of falls in love with the three. Um, I, I think the Sixers have gone to him a lot in the post, especially game one where he had 31 points, that they were trying to feed him a lot down low. I, don't, I, I think the mask may inhibit his overall vision and comfort, but I don't think it changes the way he plays. All right. Well, before before we let you go, I just wanted to get your comments on what LeBron has done in these first two games against Toronto in Toronto. I mean, that guy's unbelievable. There, there's you run out of superlatives to to say about him. Um, he he just absolutely carves them up, and he is going to haunt the Raptors from his grave. I mean, he he just <laughs> he has all the weapons, you know, just from a mental and physical standpoint, to just dominate that series. And, and the stats you see from his performance yesterday, I, it's, I don't know how this is a calculated stat, but he had seven turnaround jump shots, which was an NBA playoff record. I want to get paid um, to count the number of turnaround shots that somebody takes. I want to be that guy. Right, and, and you know there's like a historical <laughs> archive that somebody's had to keep for a long time. Oh um, but... But, you know, I mean, he's that guy's unbelievable. There's just, like I said, you can't find the right adjective to describe him. Well, we uh, we will look for further adjectives. We know the biggest story tomorrow will be who's ringing the bell. We'll look forward to you breaking that. And, Not uh, Dr. J, is and, my guess. And, and all the rest of the news. <laughs> hope for a little bit better result. Uh, watch out for Jeff. Make sure he doesn't storm the court tomorrow. And uh, we'll hope to have you back on soon. Uh, we'll definitely keep reading your, your stuff. It's been great. Absolutely. Thanks Thanks a lot, guys. Have a great one. Thanks so much for joining us. Jeff, so you're headed down tomorrow night. What are you expecting to see down there at the game? You're, you think it's going to be loud? It's going it's to be loud. The, the, here's the problem. 
if they don't get off to a good start, it's going to be it's going to be just as quiet as it was loud minutes before that. Yeah. They they have got to get down the court quickly. They've got to get a couple big baskets, and one of them has to be just a rim rattling, close to backboard shattering dunk. And that will, and it's got and it should be from Simmons. That that's what people want to see. They want to see because it, it's not. Having a bad game is one thing, and and it was probably it had to be Ben Simmons' worst game ever in his entire life. I'm guessing when he was six years old, he was playing better than that. But what what worried me yesterday was the look on the face. Yeah, was was the the way you know body language means so much. And if he comes down the court aggressively and just cuts through and jams it like he's capable of, I think that he's going to have the crowd behind him. And I think that can carry them a long way. It's a it's a big game tomorrow night, Jeff. You need to be loud, um, no matter what. Don't lose hope. Um, it's just the, the the mentality of all of a sudden they're down. It's over. I, I don't. I'm not. I'm not there. Look, we know what city we're in. Yeah, we know that it is normally once it starts that sky is going to fall. Yeah, we've now learned with the Eagles the sky doesn't always fall. No. Right, and, and and you you got to keep. The faith that this is not over. being down two nothing when you lost both of those games away to the Celtics is not so bad. They That's optimistic, had the Jeff. Lady and, ladies and gentlemen, he'll be here all week. <laughs> yeah, uh, but it's already Friday. <laughs> it's already Friday, so at least we got something in. All right, let's uh, let's leave the Sixers there and uh, before. So we're gonna break around four thirty, and we'll come back and we're gonna bring you a new segment that we're starting. High hopes, our Phillies minor league rundown where Jeff and I are traveling around to some of the the minor league teams in the Phillies organization, talking with players. We'll give you a glimpse of what's coming on. Before we get there, let's go to the Eagles for a second. The draft. Yeah. All right? So it's in Dallas. Did you watch? No. So, I mean, I, I watched when I knew that picks were up that were coming, but it wasn't. It just wasn't the same. I know that we're in Philadelphia, but the way that it was done oh, last it was so year weak, the setup. Was, it is, it, I mean, this whole thing inside and, and all the teams are in their nice little squares. The forced and, fake fandom. And, with and the, the ridiculous. Those hats were hideous, yeah, by the way. I, I wasn't into it. Yeah. However, okay, so. But I it watched, was watched. I it watched. Was the, it was it, the highest ratings ever for the draft. Well, I it was on like 75 channels. That's true. Yeah. So they had, they had more, the different, <laughs> Did they have the different angles? More opportunities yeah. for you to see it and figure it you out. You can watch it on True TV. So, of course, <laughs> I watched the whole first round and the Eagles trade out right at the end. I had yeah. no problem with that, by the way. Um, picking up an extra second next year, I was okay with. So, David Akers um, is announced as the person who's going to make the pick <laughs> before the draft starts. And... The reaction was a kicker. He's gonna like not Brian Dawkins, not somebody who's gonna show some aggression. Not so we were wrong. Okay, yes, we were wrong. And David Akers went at the Dallas fans to the tune of how did he get out of there? <laughs> I don't know. Where's my audio, Brett? Ah, eh, Brett's screwing it up. I... That's right. He went there uh, in Dallas. <laughs> it was a great. I don't know who wrote it, but it was a great line. But you've and you've but heard. How did, he, some, how did he get out of there alive? I don't know, but you've heard something similar in Jerry Maguire before. <laughs> kind of similar, that, David that, Akers. That was. Kind of. So 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 now the question is. 
is David Akers really Tom Cruise? <laughs> Has anybody ever seen in Philadelphia? Next time you you look around, see if you've ever seen David Akers and Tom Cruise uh, in the same place at the same time. So chalk up the things I never thought I'd say. One, T.J. McConnell should have been in the game instead of Ben Simmons. Two. David Akers is Tom Cruise. Those things I never thought ever in my life would I'm guessing his wife come never as, say that. as thoughts that would come <laughs> along. But what the, the Eagles ended up doing, so the day of the pick, yeah. Dallas got the news. You can't, you can't write this no. script. So Dallas gets the news the morning of that Jason Witten apparently surprises them and is retiring to go become Monday another Dallas broadcaster yeah. on my television right. screen. Basically, it's like a prerequisite for being a color is, analyst. Is there now any is, main game that is not does not have one of them on it? Because you have now you have Moose Johnson, you have you Aikman, ha- Aikman, you, you have, have Romo, Tony, Tony Romo, you have uh, Michael Irvin in studio, and, and now you have Jason Witten. Yeah, so it's it's going to be hard for yeah. for Philly fans. But so what they did was. The Eagles traded up ahead of the Cowboys to take a tight end <laughs> named? named Dallas. <laughs> you can't make it up. It can't be any better. And from a football f- standpoint, it gives Wentz another weapon. Um, look, they were short tight ends after Burton's yeah, gone. Yeah, but that part doesn't Selleck's matter. Gone. No, it's, it's the fun part of the story, though. But See, you do have to analyze it but, from but a... Here, but here's the question. Why did nobody have a camera... In the war room of the Cowboys at that. Oh, moment. I think they did. I just don't. Can think the you NFL imagine should. that was the, that would have been the moment of the draft to see Jerry Jones? You would have had to bleep his reaction, but right, it would have been funny. The news wasn't all good though coming out of the draft. Not all about players. Timmy Jernigan, uh, big difference maker on the defensive line last yeah. year, out four to six months with a herniated disc in his back surgery. So you, know, you look at that time frame: four months puts you at the end of training camp. Six months puts you in November. And the Giants, I mean, the running backs that the Eagles are going to go up against in the East now with Saquon Barkley on the Giants, mm-hmm. Zeke Elliott on Dallas, Washington's run game. Well, keep in mind with the Giants, they, <coughs> st- they still have five trash cans that are guarding the line. So They, they improved a little <laughs> bit on their offensive line now. They, well, they, they took a they, in the second round, they took that big guy who was like 340, but yeah. we'll see how that goes. Um, He's still a rookie. The team also resigned Darren Sproles. He's going to come back. Did that surprise you? No, I think having a veteran influence on the offense, I think, is still a good idea. I mean, they're still a young offense, so I think having him there and his versatility and having him be able, if he's healthy, to do punt returns, I think that's a big part of bringing him back. Anything else with the draft? Open your eyes. Obviously, Cleveland taking Browns stunk up the draft again. (laughs) How can they do this? Look, every time somebody says something about someone's draft picks, you you don't know, but it just... It looks so wrong. Really, you couldn't get Baker Mayfield lower. And then when you got if that if you got your quarterback, why, why, why did you not take the best defensive player in the draft? Because they're the Browns. <laughs> what other well, that, excuse is there? I mean, uh, I I just can't imagine what it's like to be a Browns fan. Okay, so if you're a Browns fan, you know that in and the past in, in the past three years, you've passed on Carson Wentz and Deshaun Watson and right. taken Baker Mayfield. Yes. How you feel about that? Oh no, you forgot somebody. They also took Johnny Manziel. The they year did before. take Johnny Manziel. Yeah. I think that it's who who himself said they should have known better than to take. Him. <laughs> you know, that, that, Johnny's yeah, coming you, back, and you you know that your your front office is bad when the guy who was taken says you should have known better. 
Um, <laughs> one of the so they took a what seems like it'll be a slot cornerback yeah. on the shorter side. I'm uh-huh. sure that got your attention that he was on the <laughs> shorter side because he's on the shorter side. Well, no, I j- I just don't get that. I mean, everybody talks about Chubb as one of the best players in this draft who's going to be around just haunting quarterbacks for a decade. And for some reason, they're taking another defensive back. They took Peppers last year. I get what the NFL is trying to do with the draft. It what do they do? It didn't work What are they for trying me. to do? The, the whole entertainment aspect of it, spread it out over three days, make it a thing. Philly was different last year because of the atmosphere well, out there. it was there. still spread out over days, It was just, but day one and day two were a festival. I mean, it, it, was, it was an outdoor carnival atmosphere. It was great for the city. The, having it in Dallas is just because it's Jerry Jones and he wants it, everybody in his palace, but if you've ever been down to that stadium, it's not in the city. It's it's out in the middle of nowhere. So it's not the same thing to have it there. No, it definitely not. Uh, we'll see where the NFL goes next year. Anything else you found newsworthy coming out of the NFL draft? No, just yeah. the Browns. It, it wasn't it wasn't a newsmaker. I, I mean, it, it, where the quarterbacks went and the fact that I mean, it was Ozzie Newsom's last draft. He's retiring. Um, but I thought it, the one interesting move was taking Lamar Jackson. Trading with the Eagles to get Lamar Jackson. Yeah. Uh, I thought that was an interesting, and it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out because he is so different than the quarterback they have now. Mm-hmm. You, you're really going to have to change your offense because Flacco's not exactly super mobile at this point. South Jersey guy, Joe Flacco. Yeah, well. Be nice. All right. <laughs> I'm going to let Jeff have the last <laughs> word there. Uh, that last word is, all right. <laughs> this is the Heart of Sports on 610 ESPN. When we come back, we're going to debut our new part of the show, High Hopes, the Phillies minor league rundown. Stay with us. Are you looking for a lifeline? Verizon New Jersey Shares Communication Lifeline is a statewide nonprofit that provides assistance to individuals and families living in New Jersey, those who are in need of temporary help in paying their communication and energy bills. Want to know how to apply? All you need to do is call Verizon New Jersey Shares at 1-888-337-3339 or visit on the web at www.newjerseyshares.org. It's quick and easy to sign up, but remember, you must be a Verizon residential landline customer to apply for eligible programs. That's Verizon New Jersey Shares, keeping the lines of communication open for you and your family. Attention sports fans, the heart of sports is excited to be the media partner with the newly formed Athletic Business Alliance for their kickoff event being held on May 8th at Ron Jaworski's Ramblewood Country Club in Mount Laurel. Players from across all sports have been invited to connect with the Alliance's player-to-player network. If you'd like to get involved, sponsorship opportunities include program advertising and tickets. Visit abagamechangers.net or call 856 673 1911. This is Lou Nolan, the voice of the Flyers. You're listening to The Heart of Sports with Jason Springer and Jeff Cohen on 610 AM. Welcome back to The Heart of Sports. Jeff Cohen decided not to talk through that comeback because we had Lou Nolan welcoming you. Thank you, Lou. Jeff, thank you for uh, You're keep, welcome. keeping it quiet there. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's time for something new here, Jeff. So now we're going to do our intro. I'll talk over it now. Nope, nobody even heard the crack of the bat there. All they heard was the crowd and your voice. Maybe the batter whiffed on that one. But. It's possible. We decided that, you know, it, it, there's more to baseball than just what we see with the Phillies and the major league teams. Jeff, you and your son are, are basically my catalyst for this because <laughs> your minor league knowledge uh, far exceeds mine. Why don't you tell the listeners where the idea came from and uh, what we got going on here? 
So over the course of the last 10 years, uh, you know, we've been traveling around to minor league games and and see um, players from the moment that they're drafted, when they're 18 years old or so, or 17 years old, if they, if they get them from another country and they just sign them as free agents, just kind of progress up the system. And it, it's made us more invested in the Phillies. But what we've gotten to see is the growth of of young men into major league baseball players. And at times young men struggle to do something they've done their whole life and to try to realize their dream and it not work out. And, and we talked about it and thought maybe it would be a good idea for us to spend the summer going around to these minor league parks. So that, so that for, for all of you that can't get to every one of these stadiums, so that you can experience what we've been experiencing and kind of get invested in, in these players from the moment that they get drafted, the moment that they're signed, and until years later, you see them in the major leagues. So, for example, I've watched Reese Hoskins play at single A and double A and triple A and, and advance from a guy who, you know, people thought maybe he would never make it here because he struck out too much to a guy now that, that has an incredibly disciplined strike zone and what he went through to get there. And, and we've seen pitchers who, you know, Cole Hamill started with Lakewood and worked his way up. You know, became a, he was a very hot-headed kid. If you remember, he broke his hand out of frustration during a game and to, be, to become the, the wily veteran that he became towards the end of his time here. You, you get to see what it's like to go through minor, minor league baseball, and we're going to do that not just through telling you um, how players are doing from week to week, but, but also interviewing the coaches the people in the front office, the players, and it, it'll be a lot of the prospects, the ones that we expect will someday be here or on some major league roster because um, a lot of these guys get, are, are then get traded or guys that you may not. Uh, you know, just a quick story. There, there was a guy in the minor leagues with the Blue Claws a few years ago. That's uh, a Lakewood team for our listeners who aren't is. familiar with the minor league system. And we understand it's a little bit confusing sometimes, different teams, different names, so we'll try to go over that as well for yeah. you. At, at Lakewood is the low A team. It's it's really the second lowest level in baseball. Um, and, and there was a guy named Luke Wirtz, and Luke was a, a, a pitcher out of the University of Nebraska. And we watched him at Lakewood, and he was he was great at Lakewood. He was a relief pitcher. And and he struggled after that. And, and I remember we went to a charity game that they had, and we, we wanted an auction his jersey. And um, Luke did not make it to the major leagues. But he's, from what I've we've seen, we've actually tweeted to him, my son still wears his jersey. He had it signed by him and stuff. And we tweeted to him about six months ago, and, and he thought it was so great that there's a kid out there that is still wearing his jersey. And when we went to Lakewood last week, uh, the, the director of media relations saw my son wearing the jersey and commented on, you know, Luke was a great guy. And, and, and I think that's what people need to realize. Minor league baseball is level after level after level of thousands of ball players, the majority of which don't end up making the major leagues, but do this out of a passion. They're not making $3 million signing bonuses and things like that. Nah, and so we're going to go through um, each week. We'll do a recap of what's going on uh, at the different levels of the team. We'll have some interviews that we've done at the different ballparks. Today we'll have two of the Lakewood Blue Cause players. Uh, and then we'll do a stock up, stock down segment at the end. So you can kind of expect that every week on the show. Jeff, why don't we start at the, the highest level, closest to the majors, at the, 
the fans may know some of the the players' names. Uh, the AAA team, Lehigh Valley. Wh- where are we at with that? Team well, right sh- well, should we start by explaining <clears throat> the different levels? That would probably be a good place to start. Uh, well, I'll just do it quickly. So, so the way that it works is when you're when you're drafted, uh, which by the way, the draft is in about thirty days. So when you're drafted out of high school, or if you're signed as a free agent from another country, like the Dominican Republic or Venezuela, a lot of the players that you that you've seen that come from those countries, they get drafted as free agents. They uh, they don't go through the normal draft. They go usually to short season A, which in in the Philly system is the Williamsport Crosscutters. They play half a season because these guys are used to playing 20 to 30 games a year. They're not used to the grind of 140 games, which is they play 142 kind, games. Kind of like what people think of when they think college basketball to the pros exactly. going from you know 30 games to yeah, 80 but this, plus. But, but as bad as a grind that is, going from 20 to 30 baseball games to 140 baseball games over the course of a summer in the heat, it, that's a grind for guys. So then you have... Lakewood is the next level. That's single A. And then Clearwater, Florida has the Threshers. That's where the Phillies have their spring training. That's high A. And then you get to Reading, which is double A. Which you can catch on this station after us and and every night that they have a game or day. They play day games. They (laughs) do. No, no. They play morning games. Morning games. games. I never knew that. (laughs) I learned that. But you can catch the Reading Reading team uh, here on 610 for their games after us each week. And, And if you're interested in finding out who's pitching for each of those teams every day, we have our own Twitter account now called High Hopes Phils. Um, and we put up there the minor league pitchers that are supposed to be pitching that day. Uh, we do that in the morning or the night before. And then we also go through players that have had good games the night before. So, so what, we try to give you some So then we get to the AAA team, which is a team closest to the majors, which yes. is a good place for us to start this week uh-huh. with what's going on with the Lehigh Valley Iron Pigs, who I just love their name. well you know how that name came about right yeah yes or pig iron yes yes so so they're 13 and 12 and they're in second place in the international league's north division um the prospects that you probably know because they've actually already been here include roman quinn and for those who i mean when roman quinn was up last year he's a spark plug he's he's the kind of guy he's like a vince coleman guy and there aren't that many guys left in the major leagues and so he's healthy that's the first thing, because because he has been injured year after year. Um, he's batting three oh nine. He's hitting two. He has two home runs, two doubles, two triples. The big thing is he has eleven stolen bases. And he's playing in the outfield, and yes. you want him to stay there. I do. You don't want to see him. <laughs> so I mean, so, it seems like the Phillies are moving towards versatility of yes. players and positions so in, in general. In spring training, and when we had Jim Salisbury on, we talked about a little bit about this. Um, in it, when he was at Lakewood, they tried to convert him to a full-time shortstop, uh, and that was before they had drafted Roman. Was drafted the year before J.P. Crawford, so they tried to convert Roman to a shortstop, and it was not a great experiment in the field. Uh, I saw him in one game, I believe, make three errors, just throwing it over the first baseman's head. But as an outfielder, he covers an incredible amount of ground. It's fast, and he's graceful. And he's the kind of guy I was really hoping would make it out of spring training to the Phillies, and there was a real good chance he was, except for the fact that they have this glut in the outfield. He, you want to have a speed guy on the bench, and, and he would – he would be a spark at the end of games if he's not in the game. So I'm going to give you a couple other players we'll go through quickly because we want to make sure we have time to play some of the interviews we got last mm-hmm. week too. Dylan Cousins and Tom Eshelman. So Dylan Cousins is as close to the Hulk as you're going to get. 
Every time I see he's hitting a home run, he and I talk to you about it, and gigantic. you go, but you got to watch his strikeout. Yes, so if you, you look at his stats, the good, 289 batting average, six home runs, including he's the first iron pig to hit three home runs in a game this week, which he did uh, during a 10.35 a.m. game. Yeah, I got a so, lot of notifications on my phone from the what, minor league whatever, whatever they feed for breakfast, they should also be feeding eat, for dinner. Eat more of that. Yes. yes. Uh, he has 15 RBIs and a 9.44 OPS. The bad. Got 35 strikeouts and 83 at bats. Does yeah. he have a hole in his swing, or what is the yeah, problem? Yeah, he has there? a really big hole in his swing, um, and and that's he's going to be one of those guys that if he ever makes it to the major leagues, it's going to be that they're just going to accept the fact that he's going to strike out 200 times a year. Eshelman, he was the Phillies pitcher of the year last year in the minor leagues. He has gotten off to a, a slow start. He doesn't have overpowering stuff, um, but I think he's the kind of guy. The guys that are more feel guys usually take a little longer to get going because it just takes a little longer to, to hit those spots. So I'm not worried about him, but I don't see Eshelman as anything more than probably a four or five starter when he gets up here. We've got some of the pleasant surprises. we got De Los Santos, and Sir Anthony Dominguez has drawn yeah. the attention of people. By somebody more important than us. Yeah. Why, where did So Kapler went on his day off got a last steak week. And went, yeah, and went to Reading. Sir Anthony. And people were wondering why he was there, and the rumor he was there was to see a guy named Sir Anthony Dominguez, who at Lakewood was a starter, and they have converted him to a reliever, and he has electric stuff. And So he went and saw him at Reading, and yeah. then after they saw him, they moved him up yeah, to that, Lehigh Valley. There, there was no coincidence. So he, got, he, got, he was at A. He was aved appearance at 13 innings, 18 strikeouts, and only two walks. Okay. So they immediately promote him, and he's been in three games, an inning each. He has not given up a hit at AAA. It's a very small sample size, so don't get super excited. Three strikeouts, zero ERA, and and a point. That's that's right, zero is he, ERA. Is he breathing down Hector Neres's neck as a potential future closer on this team now? Yeah, Hector has always been a worry for me. Hector just doesn't seem to have that closer mentality, kind of like. Ken Giles, but not that crazy that you punch yourself in the face. <laughs> why don't, since since we've only got like 15, uh, 18 minutes left in, yeah. the, in the show, why don't we, instead of going through the, the double and single, you want to play one of the interviews we did last week at Lakewood? All right, so so the, the first interview we're going to do is last year, Spencer Howard was the second round pick of the Phillies. Uh, Spencer has had an interest, and this is one of the things we want to focus on, Spencer has had an interesting story about how he turned around his career that almost ended in high school. Um, and w let's just listen to the interview that we did with him. So we're here with Spencer Howard of the Lakewood Blue Claws. Spencer, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Where were you at high school? Templeton, California. And I heard a story that when you were there that you were actually considering giving up baseball and playing a different sport. Yeah, so there was some political stuff going on with my baseball coach. And there was rumors that for my senior year he was going to leave and if he left, I was going to play volleyball because I went out and practiced a couple times with them just during the offseason and ended up being pretty just naturally talented at it. And so ended up he stayed, so I played my senior year, and now we're here. And then you walked on at Cal Poly? Yes, walked on. Okay. And, and were you a starting pitcher when you first started? No. So I got there and had a decent fall um, and then redshirted my freshman year just because really wasn't good enough to play and put on about 20 pounds came back the next year and started out in the pen and even my junior year started out in the pen too and then one of our starters went down with Tommy John and so I kind of filled in that role and 
took off from there. So you so you went from a walk-on to a second-round draft pick. Yes, that's and, right. And I read that your coach at Cal Poly asked you after the season to write down the things that you did to get to the point that you were, right? Mm-hmm. That's true. So, so what was – I found interesting the main thing that you wrote down. Can you tell us what, what, what it was? Yeah, so I got into meditation a decent amount my junior year, and our strength coach at Cal Poly is actually – a Taoist priest and he's super into like Eastern medicine stuff like that and he had this whole um, I think it's called Qigong um, like energy balancing thing and he would do that we would do it together once a week ish like before my start and I thought it worked and coincidence or not I ended up pitching up pitching way better after it so I kind of took it upon myself to look into that more and started meditating and I think it really helped me to focus on the mental side of the game more than just trying to throw a ball as hard as I can. So, so how do you think it helped you most from the mental standpoint that changed the outlook of how you pitch? Um, instead of throwing a pitch and reacting emotionally, I can just look at it as, okay, I threw that pitch, what can I do? Analyze it and then flush it and get to the next one. Nice. So, so this year... Mm-hmm. You're now going to have your first full season in professional baseball, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, so what what have you noticed so far about what's different here versus what you did in college and in Williamsport? Um, it's a lot on the body. Coming out every day, throwing every day, pitching one day less rest than I did in college, um, throwing just more in volume every day. But I think my body has been adjusting pretty well to it so far, and I've just been trying to keep my weight on and stay healthy, stay mobile, and get after it. So what has, have you had to change your diet? My diet? No. They feed us pretty well here, Yeah, actually. The, we get fed three meals a day plus snacks, and they're all pretty, pretty healthy options. So I haven't put on too much fat yet. <laughs> so, so this year you've started off strong. Yeah. You've got, I think, 29 strikeouts and only two walks this season. Mm-hmm. Well, how have you been able to do that? Um, just got comfortable with my mechanics again. When I got to pro ball, it was kind of an adjusting, adjusting period for me to take what they were giving me and kind of make it my own and feel more natural with it and get back to feeling athletic on the mound. Um, and it took me a little while in the off season just to kind of mull it over and make it my own. And then in spring training, I felt a couple things that clicked and just kind of been running with it from there. And have they done anything to, to talk to you about um, what it's going to be like as the season draws on? Not yet. Just trying to stay healthy is pretty much all I've been hearing. So have you ever gotten to bat? No, no, I haven't. Even in high school? In high school I did, yeah. yeah. I was not very good. Not not a hitting, but I could I can hold my own in the field. So if you had to have walk-off, if you had to have walk-up music, what's it going to be? Um, oh, geez. I don't know, probably something like Candy Shop by 50 Cent. All right. <laughs> well, thanks for joining us, Spencer. Cool, thank you. And we wish you luck. Thanks. Take care. Jeff, I love the fact that, one, you ask about their diet, and two, you ask about their walk-up music. <laughs> it was, it, well, it, but, but isn't, isn't that – as somebody who has coached lots of, of kids, I will tell you the one thing that we instituted that was the most exciting thing was that at the beginning of the season, we actually brought in announcers to announce their games – and had walk-up music for them, and then they go to something called the, for these region, regionals, kind of like the Little League World Series leading up to it. That's the thing that the kids care about The walk-up music. What is their walk-up music? Of course. Music? So, so as you get older, these are the things that you don't want them to lose that. I thought that 
his comments on meditation and learning that for particularly a baseball player. Absolutely. I mean, that's a game of failure. You know, mm-hmm. you hit one out of every four pitches and hit 250 and they're saying you're doing okay. Yeah. Uh, and so his ability to, as he said, flush it after it's gone. I was glad that we started with the single A team because that seems like one of the bigger jumps for them in their pro career. You know, you get single A, you're playing more games now before you get to double and triple A and the competition increases. So to hear somebody who's been going through the system and and came through college as opposed to just going direct from high school, I thought it was good that we started with him. What, what amazed me was is the amount, the difference between even college and minor league baseball, that in college, it, diet apparently didn't matter. It, it, it He got here and all of a sudden it was, you know, there's a chef here that makes you your three meals of the day. So you're healthy. You, you don't put on a ton of weight. It, it's interesting to see the progression because their bodies really do change once they get here and they change their mechanics. So all the stuff that made them successful, they try to take those little morsels that they think that they can use from their God gifted talent and then work on certain mechanics and they spend years getting to the majors. So when, when people say, you know, I, I've been around kids that sit there and say, boy, this, this guy stinks. This guy's working on his mechanics each day. And by the way, that kid, every single one of them you see in minor league baseball was the town star. They were always the best player. They were player. always the best player. And most of them hadn't experienced not being the best player. Yeah, in fact, we talked to point. some we talked to some of the players when they were there and they said they said the same thing that you kind of say when you go to college. So, you know, kids think that they're always like the smartest kid in high school and then they get to college and realize, "Oh my god, there's a whole world out there that's just like me." So if, if I'm being honest here, my parents would tell you I never acknowledged I was the smartest kid <laughs> in, in school. Uh, so I'm just going to put that disclaimer out there for you and move forward. But, but why don't we get to because we, we had another young guy in we, Will Stewart. On which that. you say young guy, and he yeah. took a different path. You know, yes. you had Spencer Howard come through college in the draft. Will Stewart, who we've got here, came right from high school. We're here with Lakewood Blue Claws pitcher Will Stewart. How's it been starting the season here? Great opportunity with the club? Yeah, it's amazing. Uh, Lakewood is definitely new. Uh, It's a lot bigger than Williamsport, which is kind of hard to do, but our stadium is massive, and I love it. Our fans are cool, um, and our facilities are amazing. Compared to everywhere else we've played, this place is like the Taj Mahal. What's it been like to come through the system and start to make your way through on your path to trying to get to the majors for you? Um, for me, it's been it's been a very slow road. I was drafted at 17 whenever in 2015, right out of high school. So I took the very like slow route, like we're not going to push you, we're not going to move you quick, we're going to let you kind of marinate and get good and everything like that but um, now moving through it like getting to move every every year and everything like that it's been crazy like so many opportunities have opened up and so many chances to prove yourself have opened up, opened up and it's it's incredible. Baseball is obviously a game of patience I can't imagine that's been easy for you you know getting the success of being drafted at 17 and then <laughs> having to basically slow everything down to yeah. try and Make sure you progress the right way. What's it been like to learn to be patient in the game of baseball on the fly coming right out of high school? Honestly, it's the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, people say that like playing the sport in general is just hard, that you don't understand until you get here and you go through the grind and you go through the process. And um, being 
going slow and being patient is horrible. I'm like type A personality, so like <laughs> I got to get stuff done. But learning to be patient and learning to take a step back and understand what your road is and what your route to the big leagues is, is it's, it's really hard. But once you get it, you start understanding and you, you feel more comfortable with it and you just kind of roll with it. What's been some of the toughest lessons to learn, obviously? You know, we, we talked with other interviews about you know, baseball's a game of failure, basically. Yeah. It's trying to minimize failure to, to have the success. What's it been like for you to try and accept that mentality on this level and not push too hard? to overdo it to really progress at that level you're looking for uh the big thing with me was is uh understanding your your failures because you can fail and you can fail and you can fail but if you don't understand anything from it if you don't get anything from it you're not gonna you're not gonna move forward so that was probably the biggest part for me because coming out 17 i came from high school where i dominated and then i came up here and it was just like wow all these guys are good everyone is right here you're not better than anyone they're not better than you it's just everyone's fighting so being able to understand your failure and being able to like just take it all in and and use it to your advantage has probably been one of the toughest things especially coming from young and like I've matured through this uh, organization like I was a kid I kind of consider myself less of a kid now (laughs) I'm still not a man yet in the organization but um yeah, it's been it's been tough, but it's been a ride. It's been fun. What would you say is your favorite pitch to throw? Ooh, my changeup. Your changeup. 100%. My changeup's my favorite pitch. What have you learned the most about another pitch you've been trying to? Uh, I started throwing a slider this past year, and apparently it was pretty good. So uh, I just kind of kept rolling with it, and uh, I had Berg, who is our pitching coach, and he's really been helping me fine-tune it and everything like that. So I think it's going to be something good. Oh, I got a question. So in spring training, what was it like to go to spring training with the Phillies? Oh, wow. Um, Spring training with the Phillies. My first one was ridiculous. It was crazy. There were so many big-time names. We still had Ryan Howard, and he came down, and I got to see him and everything like that. But – that was crazy. Um, our regimen is so much different than other clubs. Like we work like so hard, and we have so many things we have to get done, and we're so very structured that it kind of felt like I was like in boot camp. But it was like a good boot camp. It was like this is what you do, this is what you do, and then you're done. So it was awesome. Before you got to that first spring training, who did you most want to meet? Ooh. I really wanted to meet Roy Holiday, really bad. And then I got to, which was awesome. Um, did he give you any tips? Yes, absolutely. Roy Halladay gave me literally like the key to pitching, I feel like. He always told me, he was like, don't worry about what goes on. Don't worry about what happens. Don't worry about the results. Just worry about what you can control. Pitch your game, and that's it. So, What was your number growing up? I was always three, yeah. but my high school number was 27. So whenever I got to the Phillies, I was like, can I please have 27? <laughs> so that's what I've been rolling with. Well, we, we wish you the best of luck with everything, and we can't wait to follow your progression as you go through the system. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Have a great one. Jeff, I liked how you jumped in on that interview there. I know. You, you just you wanted to ask. Yeah, you know so for fun? our listeners who, who couldn't tell, Jeff, if you can picture this, I'm doing the <laughs> interview, and Jeff's standing kind of a little bit away and is inching closer and closer <laughs> to me to where I turn to the left, and I'm not the tallest person, so I have to look up when I'm next to Jeff, and I'm literally staring up at him, and he's there <laughs> waiting to ask. <laughs> Yeah, you know, and I don't know what made me think to ask him that question, but but the wide-eyed young guy, 
I just kind of wanted to know who was he looking forward to, and how great is it that this guy he he idolized and got to meet Roy Halladay and got a tip he considers like his key to baseball from it. I think some of the stuff that he said is so important in terms of understanding failure and managing it. And, you know, those are the things that we've always talked about on the Heart of Sports show that I find fun about going into the minor leagues because this is really where they learn those lessons about sports and get that discipline that we've talked about on the more professional level. Here, They're not there yet. They're chasing it. They, they also learn perspective in, in odd steps. Will Stewart said that how excited he was to play in this ginormous stadium of 6,000 people. 6, people. Can you imagine what his reaction is the day that he gets to step on a mound in a major league park of 45,000? Well, we will have more interviews from Lakewood next week. We've got some with the coach. Yep. You want to uh, do a quick stock up? Stock yeah, down? let's let's do well, stock Will ups. Stewart, Stewart's one of those guys. Okay. I mean, Will Stewart has had... He was not a top draft pick, but he's had five starts, 3-0, 29 innings, 25 strikeouts, only four walks, 23 hits, a .93 whip, and a 1.6. You're going to be wearing a Will Stewart jersey when you come in next time. I know. I'm it. a fan, but see, that's it. what you, you now you. I guarantee you, you will always follow, I will follow this him. guy, and, and look, I hope was, other people do. He was fun to interview. Yeah. Dar- you have Derek Hall and De Los Santos listed here. Stock up. Yeah. Well, we talked about De, De Los Santos. Derek Hall is somebody to watch. He was mashing the ball last year at Lakewood. He's moved up, and he now has. What do we have him on? Derek Hall has a ridiculous, I think he has nine home runs now. Nine home runs and 95 at bats. 22 RBI, struck out 26 times, and a 986 OPS. Ten seconds to tell me why Mickey Moniak is stocked down. Bad stats. He just hasn't shown for the five-tool player. I'm waiting for any of those tools, and there's still time, but it's, it's just been rough going for him. And Cornelius Randolph, three seconds. Rough going. Rough Real going. rough going. We will have more on the Phillies minor league system next week. Follow us. On High Hopes Phils. And we will be back. Thanks for joining us this week on The Heart of Sports. Make sure to join us next Friday night to help you start your weekend in style. Have a great one, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.